Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Victor Hansen, and it's the Victor Hansen podcast. Sammy's not with us today, but we have a return of one of our most popular guests, uh, Dr. Stephen Quay. I think you remember him. It was in March 30th of this year. And Stephen uh, came in and weighed in on a whole array of, of subjects surrounding the, uh, COVID from the scientific to the social policy. Uh, he has an MD, PhD. He's a head of a biotherapeutic uh, corporation, uh, Tassa Therapeutics. He was, he's been a faculty member at Stanford, and uh, occasionally he comes through Palo Alto when we're lucky enough to see him, and he and I have had some great conversations. And I think I'm just going to plow right into it, uh, Stephen. Last time you were here, it was kind of still controversial about the origins of the COVID virus, and there was still that taboo that anybody suggested, as you had said, one of the first that it was highly unlikely that that virus originated outside of the Wuhan lab. Is there anything you can update us on about is, is that defunct now the Fauci theory? You know, Victor, I mean, some theories never die, no matter how much uh, evidence you have, but uh, we have learned new things since then. Uh, way back in January of 2020, the State Department, the outgoing Trump State Department, put out a, a fact sheet around the virus and indicated that three scientists from the Wuhan Institute of Virology had been sick in the fall with a pneumonia uh, that looked very much like uh, like SARS-CoV-2. Since then, we've actually had those scientists uh, have been named, um, and they are, in fact, uh, some of the most uh, prominent scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology that have been studying coronaviruses for over a decade, doing synthetic biology on them, moving around the spike protein, moving around genes that involved uh, pathogenicity or, or the ability to kill human cells. So that was that was a pretty remarkable finding. Uh, the other was kind of a, 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 he said, she said, a version of what was found in the market. Yeah, so I remember that. I remember that. And that was something that I, I wanted to talk to you about there was that story also about the raccoon dog or whatever it was. What was that all about? So so what happened was the, um, the, the well, there's there's a there's a database in Germany called GSAID, G-I-S-A-I-D, which has at, at the present time and counting 15 million sequences of SARS-CoV-2 from human beings or animals or, or environmental specimens. And um, there had been an upload of some of some. Uh, genomic sequences from environmental samples taken in the market in the January to March timeframe. Uh -huh. And um, it, it, so everyone jumped on these and began analyzing them in, in pretty much real time. Uh, and what happened was some people got out ahead of their, got out over their skis, I guess is the way to put it. Yeah. And, and came out with uh, the fact that there was viruses associated with it, raccoon dogs in the market, uh, careful, deeper analysis by some very, uh, by me and by, by, you know, very, you know, academic scientists uh, proved that to be, uh, to be a hoax, to be not true. So, 
although it, it, people continue to say that it probably came from the market or came might have come from the market, there's there's still absolutely no evidence that it came from anywhere from but a laboratory. What what was uh, Stephen? When we had, and you'll have to refresh my memory, but we had one of Fauci's chief lieutenants, I think in the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, came out with a very bizarre story. Maybe, did you see that three weeks ago? It said he was up at all at night and he felt that he had participated in an effort to suppress dissenting views about the origins of COVID. And I, I didn't know what that was all about. It was almost a confessional. <laughs> that that's exactly my first take on it as well. Um, I, I think there will be, as time goes on, more and more people will, you know, have a have a consciousness attack or something, and will describe uh, in more detail what was going on contemporaneously at the time. Mm -hmm. um, there have been additional findings around some of the work that I did at the State Department, uh, some of the criticism of my own work within the State Department. Yeah. But then the backstory has been that uh, it was actually highly highly accepted within. Uh, the most serious scientist part of the of the State Department that we're looking at it. Yeah. I, I don't want to you know pile on, but when I look at Fauci's statements and he said something about religion that was kind of off topic that it, he didn't really need it or something, which is fine. But he's he and you look at these uh, communications that have been released under the freedom. He's 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 kind of a tragic figure because he. He was there for 40 years and he had this enormous multi-billion dollar purse strings. But additional information since the last time you and I have talked have not been favorable for his cause, as I as I would put it, it seems to me. And uh, I know that his not that it matters, but his popularity has gone way down. It seems that there's a lot of people who have said that if this was at the lab laboratory, which it was, and it was a gain of function, which he denied a subsidy of sorts, then the almost unspeakable, unimaginable exegesis of all this is that Anthony Fauci, and I don't want you to comment because I'm not going to put you in the spot, but that he had some culpability either in the subsidies of some sort, whether money or expertise or instrumentation or in the suppression of a narrative that would have been very useful. Is that a fair characterization of where, where that that controversy is surrounding him today? Yes, I, I think it is. I mean, I I believe there is some new testimony. He's I believe he's going to testify in uh, Congress in January, which will you know refocus the attention on this whole process. Which you know, as you say, we 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 don't need to pick on one person or one process, but there seemed to be a concerted effort among uh, many people uh, within the government to create a narrative that was not based on the absolute science in front of them, but was more designed to. Um, to maybe cover cover up some activities that people regretted in in hindsight. You feel that because you were one of the first people, I guess at that time it was a minority view and and people who were expressing skepticism about the dominant narrative of a pangolin or a bat, and you you took a lot of heat. Do you feel that in the time that since we've talked that people have now come around to you? Have you had any apologies, professional apologies, or people people write you and say, you know, I wanted to speak out on uh, in your position because it was scientifically based, but I just could. Anything like that at all? 
Yeah, yeah, that actually has happened. I, I work with some folks in some in uh, in some of the senators' offices in in D.C. and and I and I did get a nice uh, had a nice discussion about a month and a half ago where they said, you know, we've been interviewing a lot of scientists in virology, you know, you know, people in their mid of their career, 30, 40 years old, and, and all of them said, you know. Steve Quay's writings actually kept us, uh, you know, we, we were very satisfying for us because we couldn't speak out for our own career sakes. But it was nice to see uh, that we had someone out there who was who was putting out just straight science. And then what are the conclusions from that straight science? Uh, and that was gratifying, I have to say, because yeah, uh, it was a little bit lonely during the process. Yeah, it, it was. I remember in March when we spoke, you know, uh, last night in the the wonderful Bistro Vita in Menlo Park that Ali, our friend, runs. And you and I had dinner there. I had dinner last night with Scott Atlas. And uh, we were discussing the evidence for the social policies, masking, lockdowns, quarantine. And he was in a parallel universe with yours in the sense that he was arguing very early that the lockdowns uh, and the economic damage that and we talked about this earlier, the missed cancer screenings, the spousal abuse and suicide, all of the social economic uh, ramification of, of putting an entire population lockdown was might be mel- more deleterious than the actual virus. And uh, as you remember, the Stanford faculty Senate voted to censor him and the medical school. Uh, was try wrote a petition and and had with a majority of the medical school members to try to actually take his license. That failed, although they were on record of censoring him as well. But right now, as we speak, uh, there's a petition at Stanford University to recall all of those censures. And I think talking to him last night, we went over things in detail. And I told him I was going to talk to you today. And I, I think his view, and I was just wanted to see if you weigh in, even though you were more in the scientific than the public policy side. I, I think his view has been substantiated as well. Well, that's right, Victor. And and one of the things that again it comes out as we as we uh, you know start to do retrospective analyses is there was abundant peer reviewed evidence uh, of what the impact of lockdowns were on pandemic spread or epidemic spread, and also the consequences of them in terms of of economic impact and and the, and the downstream health effects of those. And these were out there; uh, they've been out there for a long time. There there are actually public policies from uh, as far back as the fifties uh, in the United. States basically looking at the uh, 1918 pandemic uh, of uh, influenza and saying lockdowns did not work. And then policies were made there. And, it, and even in, in October of 2019, the WHO, so let's just remember, that's two months before yeah. this whole process started, came out with uh, very clear statements that uh, that lockdowns, that travel, uh, that travel uh, disruptions really did not have a place in, uh, in uh, epidemic management. And yet, uh, Six months later, five months later, based on computer programs, not based on science, just computer modeling like they do with climate change and other things, um, said we should lock down. And the downstream consequences have now been measured and looking back, there's almost a, one one study that is quite well done shows a 20, 20 deaths from the lockdown for every one death that was saved with wow. respect to a COVID infection, uh, uh, 20 to 1 uh, ratio. I, I really hold... Uh... The Oxford uh, epidemiologist, Neil Ferguson, not to be confused with my colleague at Hoover, Neil Ferguson, the preeminent historian. He spells his name different, but it's 
pr- uh, pronounced the same. You remember that study? He he forecast these just this fantastic amount of people who would be killed by COVID, and then he urged a a, a complete shutdown in Western democracies. And then I think he was kind of embarrassed. He he broke his own curfew, but that had that was very influential. That original Oxford study by Neil Ferguson, I think it was, and it did a lot of damage. Victor, you're exactly right. That one study, that one man, was responsible for what happened in the UK, and then what, and then because of uh, Farrar uh, at the Wellcome Institute and his his relationship with Anthony Fauci, transferred over to the US. So there was no other uh, no other study that that really impacted our lockdown policies other than that one. So it's it's quite a catalytic event. It, it, it has a similar effect, if you can imagine. I still I still wonder around the fact that we now have what two billion people who've had COVID, and yet it started with one person on one of the subway lines in Wuhan. Online wow. One person led to this 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 huge uh, pandemic, and and Neil Ferguson, for his, to his credit, is probably the one person that led to the effects of the lockdowns, which is we think is twenty two to twenty two trillion dollars wow. in economic loss. Twenty two trillion. That's Correct. larger than the GDP of the United States per annum. That's, that's correct. That's a, yeah. that's a worldwide loss, but nonetheless, um, yeah, it was about about five to ten percent in the U.S. and, and spread around the world. That's wow. what you get what you get to, uh, and then twenty lives lost in the lockdowns for every one that was saved by the lockdowns. You know, it was so, very strange. I know you were a faculty member at Stanford, but when when this broke down, when all this controversy emerged, Stanford University had been pretty famous for having. Michael Levette, the, the Nobel Prize winning biologist. We had John Yanides, who was a brilliant immunologist, epidemiologist who had proved the Theranos kind of scam about that blood testing uh, that yeah. sent Elizabeth Combs to the to jail. And then we had as well Jay Bacharya, who's now at the Hoover Institution. And we had Scott, who had been, you know, he had been chairman of neuroradiology, but he had branched into public policy for years. So we had these four brilliant people at Stanford. And you think that this was the occasion. They were all writing about things that dovetailed with what you're saying. And yet the university kind of orphaned them. It was weird. I thought they would be so proud of them to say, wow, we are preeminent in the world with these four brilliant people. But we did just the opposite. And I think everybody's they're so embarrassed now. They can't come out and just admit of what they did to these people. They tried to really damage their careers. That was awful. And to yeah, watch I, I, and that was they were associated in the case of Jay and others with the Great Barrington Declaration. If you and you've talked you and I've talked about that before. Uh yeah, that was that was a a a proposal for handling the pandemic by uh, sort of putting putting your major resources with the most vulnerable population, which is is the elderly, maybe without risk factors, or the the middle age, maybe the forty five to sixty five, who have some risk factor of of of, uh, of more uh, significant effect from the coronavirus. So you 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 put your resources on those folks in in terms of isolation and and helping them, and then you allow this virus, which has you know less than a 0.2 percent lethality for anyone under forty without risk factors, um, you let it just just sort of happen, um, mm-hmm. and that that was that was really highly criticized, almost to the point of personal attacks on these yeah, people. Yeah, it, it, it was. You know, one thing that we talked about nine months ago, and I think I asked you, and you gave me a, a, a kind of a prescient answer that nobody had. I just sort of hypothetically said, has there anything good come of 
gain of function. I wasn't even talking about a cost benefit. And you were pretty adamant that the risk so outweighed the possible benefits that you couldn't, and, and please correct me, that you couldn't think of a substantial scientific breakthrough that was worth the risk. Is that is that still what your feeling is? And did I did I summarize what you felt at the time? Uh, yes, you, yes, you absolutely did. And so I, again, I tried to look at it very deliberately. So I went back to the to the late '80s and early '90s and and looked at all of the gain of function um, experiments, publications on on viruses, where there was an attempt to try to predict what nature would do by adding uh, virulence factors or, or other things to viruses, and then learning from that. And I and I saw no actual outcomes from any of that research that benefited. Uh, benefited humans. I mean, what happened was we got the sequence of the virus and, you know, within a week we were making vaccines to it, which is kind of what we can do nowadays with our technology. But you don't you don't need to do a thousand or two thousand years of evolution in the laboratory to create something that probably can't even occur in nature. If you run the probabilities on some of the gain of function things mm -hmm. that they did, there was just no probability of having you know, a bat and a virus or two viruses recombine in a way that is done in, in one afternoon in the laboratory. And so it was all hubris. And what, what you know, again, I don't want to be too cynical, but what you, what you see in, in the private videos of some of these scientists when they're talking to potential investors or, 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 or you know, government groups or that sort of thing is a, is a pattern of sort of creating the worst case scenario, scaring people, and then and then trying to say how they would come in and, and, and save the day. And but for their work, um, you know, we would be in even worse shape than we are. And it's it's very manipulative because when you take someone who doesn't have a scientific background, you you know, most of you have to assume that they're not going to be able to criticize a scientist. Yeah. And so the scientist has a little more responsibility to be balanced in their presentations. And there was nothing to the, there, there was no balance whatsoever no. in that. And they were, uh, and as we saw for Equal Health Alliance, for example, I mean, they generated, I believe, over $60 million from, wow. from DOD and from, uh, from NIH and from private investors, uh, basically scaring people. What, what do you, can you speculate, what do you think is the status today of the Wuhan Virology Lab? Is it still functioning? Are there are there labs like it in China or in Europe or here? I know maybe supposedly not here, but is gain of function discredited or is it it's just going on as nothing's happened? No, Victor, it's quite amazing. There are probably only 50 or 60 out of the you know, 24,000 scientists that are funded by NIH. So 50 or 60 doing gain of function research. And they're they're going full speed and they're just continuing and they 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 have they have no shame about their work. It's it is really remarkable. Is it um, is there any increased is there any increased awareness of up you know to to heighten security protocols or to keep a safe zone or to to re redo either in China or elsewhere that this was such a colossal failure? Is there any did they learn anything from it? I, I think they learned. You, you don't know, of course, what the Chinese yeah. learned because they don't tell, tell you about it. But there, there, there's always been um, four levels of, of laboratory security uh, where you can do different kinds of research. You know, so they're called Biological Safety Lab or BSL 1 to 4. Um, BSL 3 and 4 are where you want to be with the most dangerous viruses. So Ebola is always BSL 4. SARS-CoV-2 is now BSL 4 or maybe 3. But we know in retrospect that the Wuhan Virology was operating all of their work at BLSA two, which is the is the safety level of basically the equivalent of a U.S. dental office. 
Mm. So could you imagine? Yeah. It's in the back room of a dental office and then saying, oops, uh, and having it infect somebody and then having them go out and take a subway and, and go from there. So I believe they must have, I, I, for self-preservation, if nothing else, um, I believe that they would uh, would have learned from this. Um, they're, you know, they had a first vaccine in about March, which many people, me included, if you yeah, you know, I, I've invented seven drugs, so I know what a Gantt chart and then and the number of months it takes to get a drug developed. And so, when when uh, China was doing human testing in March on a SARS-CoV-2 virus, it was pretty obvious, with like ninety-five percent probability, that they must have started well before, uh, probably in the probably in the third quarter or second quarter of twenty nineteen. But nonetheless, the the, the patent uh, holder of that first uh, patent that that China had in March um, died. Uh, by going off the roof of the Wuhan Institute of Virology in May. Wow. And uh, he was a fairly prominent scientist. His, his death was sort of, I, you know, it was recognized, but not celebrated in any way. Um, so uh, there are signs that, that, that they're coming around. I, I, I'm sorry, uh, President Xi in, in February uh, introduced legislation in China where animals, for animals that are tested with gain-of-function vi- viruses cannot be resold in the markets for food. <laughs> and why you would need a law like that is kind of behind beside me. I, mean, I can't imagine it, but yeah. nonetheless, and there's huge fines and, and jail time for people that violate that. So th- that's again a, an example of, of evidence that it that it, uh, it began in the laboratory. Yeah, we're gonna get we'll come right back. We're gonna hear a word from our sponsors, and I, I have a kind of a explosive question to ask you, Stephen. But we'll be right back. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back again. And what I was fascinated with your timeline because it's pretty well documented, as you pointed out now, that there was a much earlier acknowledgement of the SARS-2 virus at the time when they were were producing or working on the vaccination, which I guess for a layman like myself, the, the obvious question is, and I guess our listeners are asking this, so they'll probably say, well, Dr. Quay, are you suggesting to us that they were experimenting before the outbreak by several months with gain-of-function research while simultaneously creating a vaccine at the same time? And there might have been a charitable explanation. Well, that makes you know sense that if you're doing this dangerous research, you might have a commiserate program to protect yourself, but they didn't they would have had a monopoly on that vaccine and then this thing escaped and you see what i'm going where i'm going it, it it's very scary 
to think that 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 could have happened, that they were almost simultaneously working with a virus that would eventually kill 50 million or more, more, infect 2 billion. Maybe it was, you know, it was an accident. Sure, of course. But at the same time, they were taking precautions to protect their own people. But nobody else in the world knew any of this was going on. Yeah, I mean that 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 is the evidence, uh, Victor. And and so if 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 we take it apart in a very deliberate fashion, I I think it it's a little more it's a little clearer um, what is probably going on there. So let's let's back up and and just yeah. a, a small tutorial on gain of function research in viruses. So there's five things you can do to a virus that qualify as gain of function. Three of them are in the world of academic research. I don't think they contribute to public health, but nonetheless, they're accepted uh, among the, the world's scientists as things you can do. And then two of the activities are have no civilian uh, have no civilian um, value and are primarily considered to be uh, to be of you know non civilian use. And I won't. I won't. I won't use the word that, bio that weapon or implies. Like, yeah. Okay. Well, you said it. I, I said it, not you. So I, I want everybody to go on record that I said it, and that he did not. He neither denied or affirmed, or he was he was uh, neutral yeah. on the question. He that's even too strong a word, but I said it. So okay. So the so the, what are the five types? So so the three things that are acceptable is changing the host. So if you have a bat virus going to human or a cow virus going to human, that's one kind of academically interesting virus, interesting process. One is to change the infectivity. So how many individual particles do you need? Can you make it more infective? So it takes a smaller and smaller dose to cause a clinical infection. And three is once an infection is established, does the immune system beat it off pretty well and you just have a bad cold or does it kill you? So so um, tropism, as it's called, changing host uh, or infectivity or pathogenicity are kind of accepted things. Now, the two that are not are making a virus asymptomatic. So wow. um, we, we know we know that most new well, not most all new viruses that run into the humans um, give off a give off a signal of an infection very early because. The human immune system is like layers of of, of warfare. Uh, what do I call it? Uh, tools or tools of warfare. Mm-hmm. So the, the medieval, you know, they had the catapults and, yes. and things like that. And we have that. It's called the innate immune system, and it's really clumsy. Um, and it, it, you know, it just and it sort of puts off a bomb in the in the in the trenches. So we get pretty sick if the innate immune system gets too excited. But nonetheless, it's there to trip new viruses that we've never seen before. And then the the sort of the stealth bombers, the the antibodies and the T cell, killer T cells are the more advanced tools that we now have that are you know being used in in, in modern warfare. But those take a those take a certain amount of time to come about. And so uh, triggering the innate immune system quickly kind of puts a hold on it, puts you know sets up a stalemate and then you can bring in your 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 real your heavy duty armor so to speak mm-hmm. so uh, making something asymptomatic is very difficult for a brand new virus mm. uh, it can be done and in fact um, there was research going on in Wuhan Institute of Virology at looking at the interplay between SARS viruses and the innate immune system and seeing if they could prevent the interferon release <clears throat> which is a signal of the uh, of the innate immune system 
And finally, the yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, the go last ahead. no. Go ahead. Last the last one. It's it's fascinating. Well, the, the the fifth one that's also not accepted and for not non civilian use, not accepted for civil, non civilian use, for civilian use. Excuse me. Is that uh, is that the virus is created in a way that it's very hard to make antibodies to it or response to it. So HIV was the first virus that taught us. Wow, here's a virus that can cause this raging infection, and yet it, the immune system cannot keep up with it. What is the mechanism of that? And, and, and that was worked out in the 80s and 90s. And so there are elements of SARS-CoV-2 that have that same property where it's very hard to make a, an antibody response to it. What does that translate into? Repeat infections you know, over and over again or vaccines that don't work and, and those sorts of things. So SARS-CoV-2 has both properties of being 40% asymptomatic at the initial transmission, which has wow. never been seen for a new respiratory and, virus. And, and that's very dangerous, right? It well, is very but, dangerous yeah. because then people can walk around and spread it without knowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, 30,000 years ago, before we had medicine, we were in little tribes of 250, 300 people. And if someone got sick, um, they would have a red face, they would sweat, and you'd, you know, you'd build them a tent you know, 100 feet away from the rest of the tribe. And if they, if they survived, you'd bring them back. And if they didn't, you know, you'd, have, you'd honor their life, so to speak. And so this, this innate immune, so the, the symptomatic responses of infection, which are fever, sweating, ro rosy cheeks, uh, became selected for. <laughs> because viruses that didn't do that, you know, you, it would kill a person and they would no longer be in the reproductive pool. So not, so having an asymptomatic virus out of the box is, again, unheard of and it is a unique feature of SARS-CoV-2, never seen before. If you were, and I want to make it clear to everybody that Dr. Quay has been adamant about his skepticism and caution about gain-of-function research, but if I were to play devil's advocate and I have $50 billion at my disposal, and you're a gain-of-function scientist, and I ask you, what do you why are you doing gain-of-function? What is your rationale? What do you hope to do for mankind? What is, what is the purpose of all this? What would you say? What would you say they would say? Yes, no, absolutely. That, and that, and that's, that is exactly the way you need to, we all need to think in terms of looking at any arguments, you know, both sides and, and, and a fair assessment of both sides. Yes. One of the interesting aspects of SARS-CoV-2 is this mRNA vaccine and how quickly it was done. So the answer in the pre-SARS-CoV-2 space would be, look, at, it takes us two or three or four years to come up with a vaccine. Uh, what we'd like to do is develop antivirals, which can treat an infection, keep the person sort of alive long enough for the immune system to, to kick in and do its job. So what that means is that you take you take viruses that are at the at the interface between nature and and man, you know, in the jungles or, or caves or or, or 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 the like, and you 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 put it in the laboratory and you give it a Darwinian test to say, I want you to kill human cells faster, or I want you to kill human cells more easily, and then you look at what that what happened in that particular virus, and then you try to create antivirals to stop that process. So they, in in theory, and we won't get into my term bioweapon because that that's irrelevant in this context. But in theory, these people are trying to help mankind by engaging in a, a very risky type of research. Yes, the the the, the foundational assumption that crumbles. Uh, you know, like like a like a sandcastle is that you can predict where nature will take a virus mm -hmm. to make it more 
pathogenic make, make it more lethal. So uh, there, there's a there's an investigator in North Carolina who is probably the number one synthetic biologist of coronaviruses. Um, he did an experiment about 2015, so eight years ago, seven years ago, in which he took a um, <clears throat> he took a, vi- uh, a a coronavirus that only infected bats. And he said, well, let's teach it to infect human cells. Wow. He did it without a foreknowledge. So what he did was was what uh, basically Mendel did, you know, the monk back yeah. in the uh, in the pea yes. patch. Um, and he just he added it to human cells and he took the ones that grew the first and he kept adding it back and forth. And by about 15 passages, it, it was uh, orders of magnitude better at killing human cells. Now. Here's the most important part of this experiment. There were four mutations in that new virus that were not present in the original virus. So out of 30,000 letters, there were only four letter changes. So that's pretty small to go from not not infecting human Mm -hmm. cells to, to killing them deadly. Two of them were in the spike protein, so this this scientist could say those two contributed to the virus sticking better to cells and getting into the cells. But the other two are back in a part of the genome, and I, as the greatest synthetic biologist, coronavirus biologist in the world, has no idea what those two mutations are doing. Wow. Can I ask you so, a question? I, as I think it's, well, you mentioned spike protein. I was talking to a friend who's a doctor, and uh, I, I got on my second case of COVID. I got long COVID for about a year and a half, and I had a lot of damage to my hearing and sight and stuff. I'm much better now. I'm almost over it. But my point is this. I talked to a doctor and he said, did you get the boosters? And I got the two Modernas. And I said, no. And he said, oh. And I guess he was being facetious, Stephen. He said, you passed on the genetic engineering. And I said, no, at vaccination. He said, no, they're genetic engineering. They're not traditional. What did he mean by that? If, if that was just facetious or what, what does that mean about these new mRNA vaccination? Yeah. So 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 let's again go down to foundations to, to really bring people along on the on this yeah. story here. So uh, for 100 years, vaccines were were a protein, a small protein from a particular virus. And then what are called adjuvants, which are, again, a, a long a list of about 10 or 15 things that are that are universally used that absolutely hit the innate immune system. So they're designed to turn on the innate immune system full bore. Um, and then whatever whatever is accompanying them is what the innate immune system will attack. So basically they're just the switch and then the innate immune system says, oh, I see this protein for, for this particular thing. The, the, the good news of those kinds of vaccines is that the protein is finite, it's not reproducing, and you've, you, know, you know the kinetics or the, the if, you, if you have a Y and an X axis, you, you know how much is going into the bloodstream and the Y axis and, and the peak on the X axis. So 24 hours in, 24 hours out, and then you're done, and the innate immune system takes over from there. The, the mRNA vaccines are completely different. They, they are a blueprint for the protein factory in your body. So they are sort of, you're redoing the cell. In other words, he was right when he said he's kind of re-engineering it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. Okay. um, Yeah. I mean, and 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 the, and the, the most challenging thing about them is that the kinetics or the time that the antigen is presented to the immune system is out of control. You, you can't control it. It's almost different in every single person. If it matches the original viruses that we're all familiar with, where it goes in and it goes out in a week and then it's not found anymore, you're going to get a, a more traditional immune response to it. But we now know that many patients will have, their bodies will, will be making the spike protein six months after the vaccination. Yeah. 
And this this wow. gets off a whole new set of a whole different response from the immune system, uh, which includes which includes the immune system basically saying, "Guys, this can't be a virus because I'm seeing it continuously. So this must be me." And it, it shuts down the immune response to it in a process uh, that can be measured in the bloodstream production of an IgG called IgG four. So uh, some wonderful German scientists showed that uh, by three or four vaccinations, most of the immunity was being generated in IgG four, which was tolerance it's the antibodies that produce tolerance it's the one you get you know what is that what is the implications of that does it mean that when he this was this researcher suggesting that the more spike protein induced vaccinations the less immunity you would have absolutely yes and it's now been demonstrated in, in large populations that highly highly vaccinated people have more recurrent infections than you know that it's so funny because i have four or five close friends that and i'm at a university that that really pushes these two, three, four boosters. But each time they get a booster, they they go somewhere because they want to get a booster to protect themselves overseas or something, and they get COVID. And I always thought maybe, well, maybe like a flu shot, your white blood count goes down a little bit. White, but it, it, you're suggesting that this German researcher found that that it was taxing the immune system to such a degree that it was losing immunity rather than gaining it against the COVID virus? So so I just want to change subtly what you said there. Yeah. It's, it's not that it taxes the immune system. It's that it converts it from uh, attacking things to tolerance. So, you know, when you, when you go to an allergist and you have allergies, you know, to yes. I don't know, some, some pollen, what do they do? They inject you over and over again with small amounts of that, of that, uh, yes. Protein until you eventually become tolerant to it. That's exactly what happens with multiple vaccinations of this. Wow. Of, of, of the it, it would, if you were to use a generic description, would it be called an upregulating or a downregulating of the immune system or both? It would be a tolerance inducing uh, effect of uh, the immune system. Fixes. Generates tolerance. How long, when you get, say, a booster with an mRNA, how long can you? Do they have any idea how long the cells will keep producing these spikes? When do they shut off producing them? Is it dependent on the individual's immune system? Or do they have a uh, spectrum where they say, we can guarantee you if you get this booster, within four months, you will not be producing any spike protein. And can they say that? No, 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 they, no, they can't, Victor. So let, let's go back to the blueprint analogy here. So your, your protein factory has, has I mean, you, your cells make 20,000 blueprints. You make 20,000 proteins in order to have a cell function as it is. Uh, the, pro, the blueprints are programmed to be shredded, so to speak, uh, after certain copies. So some blueprints are good for 100 proteins. Some blueprints are good for a million proteins. And the spike and and the vaccine the vaccines excuse me are made with synthetic uh, chemicals synthetic bases uh, the letters of the of the blueprint that are non natural and they're specifically designed not to be broken down so the blueprints for the mRNA are specifically designed to last as long as possible the challenge is that we, the, no one has worked out the details of how of, of controlling that and it's it's not controllable so there's there's two issues about the vaccines, where they are produced in the body and how long they are produced. And all we've talked about now is how long they're produced. But where they're produced is also probably a source of the um, of some of the, the more serious side effects. And what do I mean by that? When you get a vaccination, and I tell this to all my friends and, and maybe, maybe your readers now will appreciate it. When, when you get a vaccination for any vaccine, 
You want it to be intramuscular or subcutaneous. Yeah. You don't want to be it to be intravenous. How do you know? Well, when the when the person puts the needle into your arm, they should draw back on the syringe a little bit. Uh -huh. if blood comes up into the if blood appears in the uh, you know in the in the vaccine. They need to throw it away and do it again because they've gotten themselves into a vein. What happens when you inject the the the, uh, the the SARS vaccines into the vein is it now goes throughout the body and you know you're playing Russian roulette with where it goes. Um, a physician in in Florida uh, had the vaccine and he began to have platelets that were covered with spike protein. Wow! Uh, because it, because it went into the bone marrow, it went into what's called the megakaryocytes, which are these big cells that make platelets. And so his body was seeing something about, you know, a little bit bigger than a virus a platelet and covered with spike protein. So the body started attacking his platelets. He could not, he could not stop from bleeding to death and he died after two weeks. I mean, every, every physician in the country was trying to help this guy and we couldn't, he, you know, he finally died of a, of a brain hemorrhage and that's wow. because, he, you know, he lost the Russian roulette of where the vaccine went. Does, does the virus in its natural state, as it infects you, do we know, does it have the, the propensity or the ability as the our artificial mRNA to keep producing or does it die finally when your immune system kills it? So it, it, um, it is not like HIV, which is truly a chronic infection and no. the immune system can never stop it. Uh -huh. um, so SARS-CoV-2 goes into any cell with a ACE2 receptor and secondarily less efficiently any cell with heparin. So it, it's literally any cell in the body, but it, in its normal way of reproducing, it comes out from the inside of the cell after, you know, like a million copies are made, the cell explodes, it dies, and those million things go into the bloodstream. And if you have antibodies, if you have T cells ready to attack it, um, it probably loses that fight. Um, now, one of the interesting things that the furin cleavage site in, in SARS-CoV-2 does is it creates uh, what I call a uh, a tunnel-like military operation and you know we're we're seeing we're seeing the consequence of a tunnel-like military operation in the middle east but what i mean by that is the the furin cleavage site actually facilitates and we knew this 10 years ago well before SARS-CoV-2 facilitates a lateral invasion of the of the uh, virus so now you can imagine one cell has a million viruses and instead of breaking out the top and having the immune system see it it goes out laterally into the cells next to it makes another a million cells and then then and repeats that over and over again. And this this both allows the SARS-CoV-2 to swamp the immune system with many more viruses than it can keep up with. And it also produces something that I've seen in people. I actually haven't seen this written up and I keep wanting to, it's on my to-do list of articles to write about. Um, just like um, you know malaria, which has a cyclical temperature spikes where where it goes underground and then it appears you know in a, in a cycle, SARS-CoV-2 has that same pattern of people get sick and then they feel better for three or four days and they keep yes. getting over it and then they have a much more serious and that's I believe it's tunneling into the cells next to it and then finally breaking out with a much larger dose of foot soldiers. Wow. What I ask you, this is kind of an off topic, but I was in a pharmacy the other day in Palo Alto and they were trying to push, you know, the, the latest booster, but they had a sign that said Novovax. And then I just asked, I said, why, what is this? And she said, oh, this isn't an MRA. It's something very different. Is that true? The Novovax? Yes. Uh, yes. So um, 
the the other the other approach uh, that is available is uh, what's called an adenovirus approach. So this is a a virus that's been attenuated, so it doesn't really harm you, and you can package. Uh, genetic material. You can package blueprints to take over the protein factory uh, in the, you know, in this kind of a virus. And it's, is it a, it's uh, a more traditional vaccine? It's a little bit more traditional, although there are not very many uh, virus-based uh, vaccines. Um, they're, they're in research, especially for cancer. Um, but the, the traditional, actually, Taiwan has a traditional vaccine, which is just the protein itself with the uh, innate system stimulators. Um, and that was the booster that was that was used. So, so the Novavax is more like a flu vax, but and it's not like MRA, but it has innovations itself that is sort of, I guess, euphemistically a frontier path breaking, but also maybe not as well documented as the old fashioned flu vaccine. Huh? That's right. That, That's yeah. Right. Yep. Do they have any maybe our listener? Do we have any boosters on the market? That was the Johnson and Johnson's a, a more old fat. Is there any old fashioned that have an attenuated SARS virus that are still being used, or is it just Novavax or mRNA? I think it's I think it's it's just the adenovirus uh, based ones or the mRNA based ones. Wow. Um, you know, I I don't know. I I don't want to give medical advice to you. No, I know it. I'm not. Uh, I'm not putting. You know. Uh, we're getting in our last 15 minutes. I want to give you a chance. I know that I don't want to put you in the spot, but it seems to me that the social implications of, I mean, we've done this with the Salk and Sabin vaccines. And in that case, I had an aunt that had polio and she was crippled and lived in the house. I'm, I'm speaking for 70 years. She got it in 1917 in a swimming summer swimming pool out here in the central Valley. But given that, I don't think I think you could argue the COVID virus was not as virulent as as polio or smallpox, but and I know that we were in a panic. But do you, when you look back at this, do you see this as an aberration, where in a fit of national concern or Operation Warp Speed, we did something where we didn't really think through the constitutional questions or the First Amendment, or and I know that you and I've talked about it before and there is case history and, and jurisprudence about it but it just seems to me that when we look back somebody's going to say oh my god you guys used an experimental type of vaccine you didn't listen to voices in the wilderness that were warning you you kind of forced the entire population you got rid of 8500 servicemen who innately or intuitively or with you know natural suspicions didn't didn't trust it and I have a good friend. Uh, she's one of my favorite people, Rebecca Mercer. And she, she, I can remember her calling me and she said, Victor, please don't get the mRNA. I've been reading about it. And I, and I feel so bad because I said, I, you know, everybody at Stanford's got to get it. And don't, uh, I, I just don't believe they would do that. And, and now I look back and she was so prescient about that. And uh, I, I feel that there were people around us, lay people, common people, soldiers, people like yourself that were all they weren't hysterical at all. They were just saying we're, we're on the we're on the verge of making a very, very big step into the unknown, it, almost like sending somebody to the moon when you hadn't tested the rocketry or something. And I, I think as we look back at it, is there anything we can learn about it when the next pandemic? Because it seems like another one's going to come. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess if, if I had, if I could modify your analogy, it's it's like sending a billion people from the planet to the moon because that's how many had this. That's a better, much better one. Yeah, um, you know, and 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 Victor on February fourteenth. I mean, first of all, can we trust the the Chinese on their science? I don't know, but but so we'll just take some facts and go from there. February fourteenth of twenty twenty, they published a, a, a report of eighty thousand people in China. What it showed was that all of the deaths were in people who were 80 or above or 60 and above with a comorbidity, a serious comorbidity like cancer, you know, severe heart, heart disease and that sort of thing. Nobody under 20 was dying from it. And that study should have formed the foundation of, of what we did later. So, you know, you can't fault people for doing something if they don't have data. But but a month later, we were we were locking down people. And the only thing that happened in the interim was a computer model out of uh, out of London that said, you know, if this virus is 10% lethal, it's going to kill millions of people, which of course it wasn't. Why did they pick 10% though? SARS-1 was about a, you know, a 10 to 12% lethal virus. MERS is a 30% lethal virus. So th there might've been in the absence of data, some reason to put, to drop that into your, your computer modeling, but not, not after February 14th. I had that paper on February 14th. I, I mean, I posted it on Facebook. I said, well, here's some good news. This virus is going to be less than 1% lethal and it's going to only affect old people or, or middle-aged people who have comorbidities comorbidities and not the young and you know you know you know they're now they're now studies of millions of people where they come up with the same figure it's you know it's 0.8% lethal plus or minus 0.2% but that first study was within the 95% confidence intervals of that of of every every study that's come out since you know, I, I, it's really I got a, it it drives me crazy I got a uh, email not too long ago from a uh, lifetime army sergeant and he had had COVID two times and he had resisted getting the first round of the MRA in our, uh, the Moderna or Pfizer, one of the two. And then in that interim, he had said to them, I have COVID. I had twice. Please don't make, I do not want to get the spike protein. And they, they drummed him out along with 8,400 others. And now he writes back and says, all of a sudden, I lost everything. I lost my promotion trajectory. I lost my reputation. And now they would. Now they just say they wrote him a letter and said, "Come back. <laughs> we're sorry. We didn't mean it. It was all, and we're desperately short forty thousand soldiers, and we need you." And it, it's how do you? Uh, if, we don't, if we don't learn that, if if nobody takes, takes responsibility, we're never going to learn. I think that's probably true. I mean, I mean, it is it is it is ludicrous. We you know we have these tapes of Fauci on TV from the you know because he's been around a long time, eighties, nineties, two thousands, talking about the fact that if you get an infection, you don't need a vaccine for that virus or that influenza in you know in a given year. Uh, when you know influenza goes up and down and it's it's virulence from time to time, and so there there and and that's that's just an absolute fact of medicine. It's like it's like. It's like gravity is to physics, having an infection and not needing a vaccine is to is to virology, and so it's that's just that's malpractice. I guess that would be where I would put it. It, it is malpractice to make someone be vaccinated for a disease they've already had. I don't know. I I had the flu about two weeks ago. This I don't know what respiratory whatever it is, and I had I was really ill for a week and I got over it. But when I went to the pharmacy, I was to get a medication after for my eyes nothing to do with the flu the woman said well you need to get your vaccination flu vaccination we have a i think she said a combine <laughs> that was scary a combined covid and flu and as yeah. and i said 
that would be almost as scary as a combined COVID and senior super, super duper flu shot. She said, oh, we have that. And I said, well, I just had the flu and I've had COVID three times. And she said, well, that's that's a good reason that you need a vaccination because you wouldn't have had. I said, well, don't you think I'm not going to I have a pretty good immunity now. But they were she was pushing the vaccination on the fact that, well, since you got sick, you wouldn't want to get sick again as if this whole history and science of, of prior natural immunity never existed. Uh, that was, was so strange. The attack on natural immunity was in, by some in the scientific community. I, uh, I, I know. It's, it's remarkable. It, it, it was what what you know we we're getting down to the end but you you've talked we talked about all of these uh agencies the cdc and uh the fda and the national institute of uh allergies and infectious diseases and the who uh did any of them i mean they seem to have and the who has all this transnational uh power um uh, and it doesn't it seemed to be for a while or I, I think it still is uh mouthing uh chinese narratives that were not accurate but does any of these does the i guess what i'm saying and i'm now tunneling a book i wrote the dying citizen about the on i have a chapter on the unelected where i discuss this but it seems that we're giving an enormous amount of power to people who are not only not elected but they're not subject to audit and they have enormous amounts of capital at their disposal and power over all of this. Is that one of the lessons that we have to learn from this whole thing? Well, we do. And and and, and again, these so, some of these forces are continuing to march forward. So, for example, before SARS-CoV-2, the WHO had voluntary um, notice requirements for infections and, and things along those lines, um, which, which are useful. So um, although it was Taiwan that notified the WHO before China did about SARS-CoV-2 uh, from their own surveillance work, it, th those sorts of volunteer uh, notifications can be, can be extremely useful in a global approach to, to uh, epidemics and pandemics. But out of this process, there is now a pandemic treaty that is working its way through the governments. I, I think there is there is some serious resistance from European governments. It may not it may not come about, but let's imagine that it did. This gives the WHO actual uh, authority of law, authority of international law, to, for example, uh, require lockdowns or require uh, you know closures of of airports and ports and that sort of thing. In a transnational sense. That is correct, Victor. Wow. That's good. So the sovereignty of the United States would be given up in a uh, in in a. What what all of these organizations do is they first declare an emergency, and that lets them take go down an entire separate path, of risk benefits and rights and privileges and freedom benefits uh, process. And so the, the 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 path the the spot in the path where where I think as 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 citizens as concerned citizens is we need to we need to put more. Uh, thought into the declaration of an emergency because what's that once that is in place um the powers to be are very are very draconian draconian and we've we've seen that and and then when we marry it to technology of the age i i was uh during the lockdown uh i had left a computer in my office and you couldn't go on campus so i parked i have an apartment on the stanford campus and i walked and I all the way to my um, office and I saw somebody and he said, you can't go on campus. I said, really? And he said, do not go there. 
even though I had keys and I had access. So I turned around, did not go into my office, and then got on my car and drove 200 miles home. I didn't get my computer. But what I'm trying to get at is I got an email that they that the university knew that I was there from my from my um, cell phone, and they had correlated it with the fact that I hadn't registered and I I hadn't registered that I was on campus and then I needed to take a COVID uh, test. And how, how did they do that? I don't I don't know how they can do that. But they had they were able to track people uh, coming into the vicinity and then correlating them automatically, whether they had taken an, uh, a required test in 24 or 48 hours. And then when another example is then when we opened up, I would get emails all the time saying in your vicinity, and I don't know how they knew where I was, uh, person X has got COVID. We want, and it was all, it was all, I'm not trying to say it was nefarious. It was all for our own benefit, but they were telling us who in the vicinity they had tracked that had COVID or reported and where they had been. And that, that that's, I'd never seen in my lifetime that de- degree of knowledge or control of a, an agency over the individual freedom and movement. It, it, and I, I, and it's all, as you said, it was all designed in theory to help people, but it was so easily abused. Well, that's right. I mean, so just remember that when you call an Uber and they come right up, right up to where you're standing, that is only possible because your cell phone is giving, you know, the Uber website, your exact location. And once emergency uh, authorization, you know, healthcare authorization was made in the state of California and every other state, contact tracing and, and these sorts of things became, um, you, you had you had no ability to opt out of it. I mean, um, I, I think I, I didn't, even people who have said that if you turn your phone off, it still somehow is. Uh, yeah, I, 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 well, I was kidding around and I said to somebody who's pretty technologically savvy. I said, next time I come to campus, I'm going to turn my phone off and cover it with foil. And he said, I don't think, Victor, that's going to work. And I could explain it to you, but I won't. So I, some of our listeners are obviously uh, adept at high tech. But I guess just to conclude, uh, what do you think, uh, a, a final question, Stephen, what are the chances in your that we're going to get another pandemic of a of a engineered virus in the next twenty years? You think there's a po- a possibility probability? Well, if you give me a twenty year time frame, I'll say absolute. Absolutely, and you yeah. you think it has the it has the ability to be as causes much morbidity or even more than COVID nineteen. Well. Yeah, yes, I do. I have I have particular information on that very topic. So wow. again, let's let's have our let's have our baseline frame. SARS-CoV-2 was a less than one percent lethal virus. The uh, Black Plague was roughly fifteen to eighteen percent lethal. It set European populations back about two hundred years um, in the Middle Ages. So I and collaborators in New Zealand and Australia <clears throat> were able to do forensic analyses inside the Wuhan Institute of Virology based on sequences that they uploaded into, you know, uh, mm-hmm. databases. And they didn't know that they had done this. Um, and we saw them working on three viruses, uh, a MERS virus, which is 30, 30% lethal, uh, a, a new form of influenza that was 59% lethal, and the Nipah virus, which is between 80 and 90% lethal. And they're doing what you would have done with SARS-CoV-2 in about 2017 with these, moving moving genes around, seeing what seeing what can happen when you when you put genes under different kinds of controls. So 
the, the challenge is always these 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 viruses just they have a will to get out and it doesn't take much to get infected. Um, Nipah virus has a 21 day incubation, asymptomatic incubation inherently, and then it goes straight to your brain and causes uh, severe encephalitis. When I described it to my 16 year old daughter, she says, well, dad, that sounds like a zombie. I said, well, yeah, you, yeah. you might be right. You might be right. So I, I think that unless there are, unless there's a will from the people to those governing us to, to say enough is enough and, and we need to put safeguards in place. And I have a, I have a whole spectrum of legislation that I've, that I keep recommending to folks that I, wow. when I run into somebody in Congress, um, we're going to have this happen again. Wow. Final thought. Can you, our listeners, I know we had such a huge response from your first uh, interview here with the Victor Hansen podcast. Just what are you working on? I think people are very interested or either in the corporate sphere or pro, uh, public. What, what do you, what should they be looking that you're doing right now? Who you're talking to? What are you investigating just to finish off today? It yep. seems fascinating. I think everybody's really curious how they could follow you or how can they follow you or what what how what are you writing or maybe you can give some information about your book so they can get it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I'm I'm in the final stages of of finishing a book on the origin of COVID. Um, the first two two thirds of the book is basically the just the the dry data uh, done in a way as you know if you if as if you were in a courtroom and presenting the data there. And then the, the the last third is what can we do to prevent this from happening again? And I have a whole series of very important recommendations and. Um, I'm, tr- I'm going to try to take, try, try to uh, to model the success of the private sector with respect to the, you know climate change, where uh-huh. there really is a populist movement to have um, the, the the powers to be change things. So that that's what I want to do, and, and then and then move on from COVID. Um, I, I'm very excited about what we're doing in the breast cancer space with the endoxin drug that I invented. Mm-hmm. Um, and for example, we have a trial that we'll just be completing next uh, next. And, and that's the uh, to, uh, to, is that under the the aegis of Atasa Therapeutics that you run? Y- yes, it is. Yes, yes it is. Yes. So, so next June we'll have a readout from a study which would be um, a six month trial with a drug uh, with uh, you know very 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 modest side effects at this point in time, in which we can lower the density of the breast and perhaps prevent. Um, a significant number of breast cancers, maybe as many well, as half of breast cancers, uh, by a six-month treatment with a drug. Um, so, is there any way that um, you have a website or people can follow you at, at all? Yes, or, yes. Yeah. Uh, the website is www.drquay.com. So that's d-r-q-u-a-y.com. Um, well, so I would uh, I, I put I put missives up there on various topics and and. Uh, well, that that's wonderful. I, I just want to thank you for taking all this time because uh, your first interview in, in late March of this year was I had so many people respond to it, and I've talked to so many politicians that that know of your work, and I just hope that um, you're u- utilized in a national policy uh, fashion uh, by the government because uh, I don't think we have people that are knowledgeable both scientifically and and then with common sense like you are and anyway i want to thank you for coming it was uh, it was fascinating i think everybody's going to share that reaction to this <laughs> this last hour well thank you victor it's been a pleasure and uh, and i always enjoy uh, speaking with you well thank you and that's uh we're going to sign off today and we'll t- see you soon <laughs>